AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2022, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA and this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Hello, my name is Jane Jerzak. I am a partner or a principal with PYA. I'm here with Porvi Menar, and Porvi is a member of Norton Rose Fulbright's Healthcare Transactions and Private Equity Teams and is a partner based in the firm St. Louis and New York offices. She focuses on bringing together various types of transactions involving private equity portfolio companies. Porvi is passionate about improving access to and quality of behavioral health services in the United States. She represents private equity companies and prominent nonprofit behavioral health providers in connection with their mergers acquisitions, strategic partnerships, and clinically integrated networks. She also advises hospitals in connection with restructuring their inpatient behavioral health programs, as well as telebehavioral health providers and other clients focused in the behavioral health space. She is also the chair of AHLA's Behavioral Health Practice Group. Welcome, Porvi. We've got a, a, an interesting topic to discuss today. Uh, as you wrote an article entitled Behavioral Health Transactions Outlook for 2022. A lot going on in the behavioral health space. Uh, so let's get right into it, Porvi. Can you describe for the audience the key behavioral health impacts related to the COVID-19 pandemic? What are we dealing with today and why? Thank you, Jane, um, for that uh, kind introduction. And, and yes, um, so much uh, going on in behavioral health. It was already such an active sector before the pandemic. And um, given the pandemic's you know, challenge to our collective mental health and well-being, as well as other factors such as issues related to racial injustice across the country that caused severe strife and disruption, natural disasters and issues in, nat in national politics even. Um, the level of um, mental health issues uh, generally has skyrocketed in the last uh, couple of years. And overall, 37% of Americans are reporting anxiety and depression, which is about a 235% increase from years prior. So um, uh, that really is um, very noteworthy. Um, but breaking that down, uh, we are seeing that young people 18 through 29 um, have been seen as struggling the most with both mental health as well as substance use issues. We have also seen pediatric mental health emergencies on the rise, so under 18, all the way you know, down to early teens and, and below. 
In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's um, Hospital Association um, about a couple months ago jointly declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health, uh, issuing a call to action to policymakers. Um, and obviously, you know, a lot of this is due to um, the isolation, um, the stay-at-home orders, um, lack of in-person schooling, and the stress, you know, of families trying to um, maintain um, jobs and careers while kids are schooling from home and unable to engage in all the activities they used to, um, as well as other factors. Um, and also, as we all know, healthcare and other frontline workers have been disproportionately impacted due to the um, stress of, of having to uh, deal with wave after wave of, um, of patients um, and uh, overflowing emergency rooms and um, minorities and socioeconomically disadvantaged populations have also been disproportionately um, impacted. And so it really is um, a critical time in behavioral health, luckily we're seeing a lot of progress, um, both from a market and regulatory standpoint um, in this space. Boy, what you're describing, uh, Porvi, is really uh, a pandemic within a pandemic. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, as you as you describe the the implications, the consequences, the demographic groups impacted. Um, how would you say the market has responded to this mental health pandemic? We have seen a lot of increase in market activity. Uh, it was, like I said, already a very active sector as far as um, growth um, for uh, of availability, um, mergers and acquisitions and partnerships uh, in the sector, all with a view to increasing access both through in-person as well as telebehavioral health services. A um, couple notable examples, Alira Health, uh, which provides comprehensive mental health services through EAPs, employee assistance programs. As you know, we've seen a big increase in the availability and emphasis on those. Alira Health raised around 200 million in its latest funding round. Um, bringing its valuation to over $2 billion in order to accelerate the delivery of mental health benefits for companies with employees around the world. Uh, global investment giant KKR announced the launch of GIOD Health, which intends to build a new platform to offer in-person and virtual outpatient mental health across the United States. Life Stance, uh, which is another provider of in-person and telehealth mental health services across the country completed its IPO in 2021. Uh, and in fact, in 2021, um, we saw more than uh, double uh, the number of transactions completed in all of 2020 in behavioral health, um, coming close to around 300 transactions. Uh, and that's in addition to a variety of other collaborations um, and new models across the country involving competing hospital systems, uh, behavioral health providers at the community level, as well as private equity backed and national nonprofit providers and government agencies 
coming together to collaborate um, and form, you know, consortiums and affiliations to address a shared problem that impacts um, both the quality and costs of care across their communities. Wow. So there, there has been uh, quite a bit of activity, as you've described, in the market space, both in terms of transactional as well as innovation. Um, so with that as a backdrop, how has the government responded to this mental health uh, pandemic? Uh, regulatory changes, funding changes, what's happening within our government? Uh, great question, Jane. Uh, much as they did with the pandemic as a whole, the uh, government responded as expeditiously as you um, could uh, expect them to uh, in um, putting measures in place to uh, expand reimbursement and availability of uh, telebehavioral health. Um, this included um, expansion um, of uh, reimbursement uh, waivers of originating site requirements so patients could access telebehavioral health services from their homes, waivers of HIPAA requirements, which allow the use of a telebehavioral health via FaceTime. We saw uh, state medical boards across various states loosening restrictions on providers licensed in one state um, who were willing to deliver services to patients in different states. Uh, on the reimbursement side, uh, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, MAPIA, has been the law of the land for a couple of decades now and requires parity across um, behavioral health uh, coverage and medical surgical coverage, but um, both interpretation and enforcement of uh, MAPIA uh, has been um, uneven and challenging uh, for uh, many payers in many states um, be, uh, you know, since, since its passage. And we've seen the clarifications and strengthening of parity requirements um, in the last couple of years, including under the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which added requirements for group health plans and issuers to prepare and submit written analyses where they have to demonstrate at a pretty granular level um, their methodology for how they achieve parity between reimbursement for behavioral health um, and uh, medical and surgical care. And uh, based on the initial findings um, from these requirements, the initial analyses and compliance audits, that were recently complete, completed, um, we're already seeing plans changing their practices, including removals of exclusions for um, medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorders, removal of coverage limitations for urine drug testing for mental health and substance use disorders, and removal of other clinical criteria um, limiting um, mental health and substance use benefits. So. Um, we're, you know, we've seen quite a lot of progress and, and, and given the bipartisan support for behavioral health, there, there's quite a lot in the pipeline as well. As a follow-up to that, uh, Porvi, what do you think in terms of the continuation of some of these uh, items of flexibility, the waivers and, and so forth, especially in the telemedicine space? 
Um, good question. You know, I think that's a, a general um, question that we are asking across um, uh, medicine and, and, and healthcare is um, what's going to happen after the public health emergency? Um, will there be continued? Will there be continuation? Should there be continuation of um, reimbursement for telemedicine? And you know, I think the answer is. Um, is different in different settings and different specialties, but with respect to um, behavioral health, um, where there are these large rural shortages of providers and um, where a physical exam is typically not required and um, allowing patients to access telebehavioral health from their homes makes them feel more comfortable given sort of the stigma and the hesitation that, you know, is um, decreasing, but still um, there in relation to accessing behavioral health services. We are um, optimistic that, um, you know, the pandemic has been an effective testing ground of, of, of sort of the increased access and effectiveness of telebehavioral health services. Um, and so, um, you know, I think key stakeholder groups are, are pushing to make the availability and reimbursement permanent um, following the public health emergency. And I'm optimistic that we'll continue to see availability of reimbursement um, as well as coverage for telebehavioral health services. I think we may see more of a challenge in terms of um, or some lack of uniformity across state licensing boards in allowing practice across state lines. Um, but there you know, are interstate medical um, licensure compacts and other avenues where we are seeing progress in that respect too. Well, that's great news. That is great news. So let's turn now, uh, poor V, to looking at two key themes in the behavioral health space that we're all learning more about. One is the value, uh, the benefit of integration of behavioral health with physical health. So we're seeing that as a theme. And then uh, you've spoken regarding the market consolidation and given some examples of your consolidation in the behavioral health space. So if, if we look at the themes of integration with physical health and market consolidation, what role do you see private equity playing um, in these two themes as we're further learning about how to be more effective with behavioral health care? Such an interesting and rich question, Jane. Uh, you know, both integration as well as consolidation, in my view, are, are so important um, to advancing this field. Integration of behavioral health with physical health enhances the understanding of the whole person um, and allows them to be treated much more effectively than if we were, you know, treating the physical conditions in isolation from co-occurring mental health or substance use disorders. Uh, and there have been um, numerous uh, well-established studies um, by renowned institutions that have shown that treating behavioral health alongside with physical health um, both in emergency room settings as well as um, inpatient and outpatient settings 
can um, achieve um, remarkable improvements in quality of care that's delivered, uh, reduce inpatient stays, um, increase patient satisfaction, and uh, and um, a significant significant amount of cost savings. So I think integration is is critical to the um, advancement of both behavioral and physical health. Um, however, to get there, uh, because the behavioral health provider market is um, is still very very fragmented, um, we need um, a lot of investment in infrastructure in. Um, best practices in uniform compliance plans, um, in professional management, um, in you know uh, behavioral health um, electronic medical records, and I believe that um, the more established players, um, you know, both um, publicly held companies um, such as Universal and Acadia, as well as uh, private equity-backed companies, as well as large national nonprofits like Hazel and Betty Ford, can all play a key role in bringing together uh, the um, smaller practices, the um, individually owned facilities, and um, make that investment um, that is required to uh, provide uniformity, achieve compliance with you know, privacy and third-party reimbursement regulations um, in order to uh, partner with hospitals and health systems and um, traditional providers of healthcare um, and help them integrate um, the behavioral health services into um, the physical care that they're providing. So, Porvi, do you think private equity and this related market consolidation will help us as a country get to this needed integration faster? I think that is one of the forces that um, uh, that will be very helpful. Yes, you know, I think another way that hospitals and health systems could could do it is by directly investing in um, providers, in behavioral health providers, in their community, and bringing them in-house. So I think we will likely see a lot of both happening, um, including, you know, um, even uh, increasingly training primary care physicians to do behavioral health screenings and integrating behavioral health providers into primary settings so that um, there is an integrated experience um, that could be hopefully be delivered to patients on an as-needed basis. And what about the restriction on integrated health records? With behavioral health records, I believe there's additional uh, limitations on the sharing of records. Uh, is that restriction going to be a barrier for having us integrate physical and behavioral health? Another great question, Jane. Uh, as you know, um, the uh, uh, SAMHSA regulations governing the confidentiality of substance use disorder patient records, um, sometimes known as 42 CFR Part 2, uh, have uh, much more stringent requirements than HIPAA um, for the use and disclosure of behavioral health um, uh, and substance use uh, disorder 
records uh, where there is federal funding. So, you know, if, if, if an organization receives Medicare or is even tax exempt um, and provides substance use services, they um, are governed by uh, 42 CFR Part 2. And um, uh, we have seen some loosening over the last several years um, of um, the, uh, the Part 2 requirements, uh, recognizing the new, more integrated, you know, value-based um, care delivery models, as well as the need to integrate behavioral and physical health. Um, we're, we're now at a stage where um, be, behavioral health records, substance use disorder records can be shared um, via a general patient consent for treatment, payment, and operations. And I'm optimistic that um, we'll continue to see progress in that respect because it is important. Um, but, you know, there will also need to be a balance and a recognition that, um, unfortunately, there is stigma around behavioral health. People worry about um, how, uh, how, you know, the sharing of those records may impact their employment or um, have law enforcement concerns. And so as long as there's, you know, there's stigma and those types of privacy concerns, they'll, they'll need to be this balancing act. Um, but we are absolutely seeing progress in that respect as well. Well, that's, that's good news because we do need to get there for successfully caring uh, for these populations. So that's, that's great news. Um, let's move forward. Um, we're moving past a bit the pandemic. We're, we're moving into more of an endemic or kind of a sustainable view. So if we think about where we are with the pandemic, what would you see the post-pandemic behavioral health or telebehavioral health world look like and why? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, pull out my crystal ball now and um, start to make uh, predictions, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll continue to see a lot of integration and a lot of consolidation. Um, but I think one impact of the consolidation um, and the increased governmental and uh, commercial reimbursement um, that will be accessed through the consolidation will be um, increased scrutiny and increased focus on compliance, understandably, you know, whereas you had smaller behavioral health facilities and providers, many of which were um, dependent on self-pay uh, for the most part, often flew below the radar, but large private equity-backed players and other um, deep-pocketed consolidators that receive significant governmental and commercial reimbursement will become attractive targets for federal enforcement of the False Claims Act. In fact, um, since 2013, so you know, well before the pandemic, at least 25 private equity-backed healthcare companies um, paid settlements in excess of 570 million for alleged violations of the FCA. Um, and behavioral health companies may be at greater risk for enforcement compared to other healthcare services companies because um, there's been a history of um, uh, inappropriate practices in this sector. Um, and there um, is now the availability of special legislative tools um, specific to behavioral health, such as ECRA, the Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act of 2018 that, that the government can use and, and has started to use to ensure um, uh, that um, 
the um, there's you know um, practices with respect to referrals and utilization are in compliance with applicable regulations. Um, on the bright side, you know the, the larger players in behavioral health have both the resources and the right incentives uh, to invest in pre-acquisition diligence to um, you know see where there may have been historic problems and root those out, and um, to invest in sound compliance programs and practices post-acquisition. And so um, I, I'm optimistic that there's really this great opportunity to raise the bar for quality across the behavioral health industry as a whole. Uh, so that's on the compliance uh, side. Um, on the, um, the parity side, I think we'll continue to see progress in um, enforcing these um, these uh, the parity requirements um, that were passed uh, recently, um, the Department of Labor, uh, Health and Human Services, and, and Treasury um, have asked Congress to um, strengthen enforcement authority in several ways. For example, by pro providing authority to assess um, uh, penalties for parity violations uh, or expanding authority to recover amounts lost wrongly denied claims and um, expanding permanent access to telehealth and remote care services. Um, on the telebehavioral front, as we previously discussed, um, you know, we've hopefully the pandemic um, has been um, a useful testing ground for the effectiveness of telebehavioral health. Um, services. And so we'll continue to see those expand. Um, and uh, in light of the growing pediatric mental health crises, there have been several bills that have been introduced to Congress that are intended to improve students' access to mental health services and provide funding for suicide awareness and prevention. Um, so I think the outlook for you know, additional um, consolidation, integration, and legislative changes is, is bright, um, particularly on the legislative side, given the broad bipartisan support for behavioral health. That's excellent. Um, and just a follow-up question, do you believe that the increase in reimbursement rates and kind of the organization that we're building around behavioral health will increase the supply of psychiatrists and other behavioral health providers? I think that that is a, um, a necessity, Jane, because there is such an undersupply and that was before the pandemic. We had 40% of counties across the United States that didn't even have a licensed social worker, largely in rural areas. Um, I do think that you know increased reimbursement, increased awareness, increased demand and the increased value we place on um, our mental and behavioral well-being um, will help hopefully motivate and incentivize um, more um, medical students and other qualified um, professionals to go into behavioral health. But I think that is something that will take time, obviously. Um, but I think that, yes, we'll see progress in the right direction. Excellent. Well, Porvi, this has just been a very enlightening uh, discussion regarding the issues and opportunities with behavioral health care as we see it today. Any final concluding comments for the audience? 
Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground. You know, I think uh, much like the overall acceleration in telemedicine trends that resulted from the pandemic, that progress we've seen in behavioral health, including increased access to telebehavioral health and early attention to pediatric mental health, um, really represents some of the silver linings of this tumultuous period for healthcare in the United States. And um, I'm optimistic that um, all of the recent market and regulatory advances in behavioral health uh, represent significant overall progress towards closing the gap um, in an area of healthcare that has been historically misunderstood and, and neglected. So going back to the silver linings, I think, you know, these are some of the silver linings of um, the last uh, couple of very challenging years that we have had. Thank you. Thank you for your insights. Again, poor Vimaniar. Uh, thank you, audience, for listening to this podcast. Again, my name is Jane Jerzak. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.